Welcome to Smart Talk and a Smart Talk Road Trip. I'm Scott Lamar. Today we are broadcasting live from the Cornerstone Coffee House at 2133 Market Street in Camp Hill. We invite you to stop by and see us. And we're going to be talking about elections. I know it's no big surprise. Election Day is only 12 days away. For many of us, it couldn't come soon enough. It not only has been maybe the most unusual presidential campaign ever, but also has certainly been the longest. The campaigns and the election are our focus today with an emphasis on repairing a divided country. At least we'll talk about that. Our guest during the first portion of the program today is Dr. Sarah Niebler, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College, and Dr. David O'Connell is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College. Drs. Niebler and O'Connell, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. Since we are on the West Shore, I thought we'd go to Dickinson College. And uh, again, want to thank you very much for being with us today. You know, I say it's 12 days away, and it seems like it has been a long, long campaign. You've been, the two of you have been doing this for some time now. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this? What sticks out to you about this campaign? Well, you know, you say that most people are waiting for the election to end, and I actually hope it never ends. Uh, I wish it could go on forever. I've, I've loved this experience. Uh, and it certainly has been a unique campaign. Uh, but I do think at the end of the day, when you step back and you say that we've gone through this process, going back to the primaries, perhaps a year and a half, two years of candidates running for office, and you have two nominees that are the two most unpopular nominees in major party history, uh, one of whom most people feel is unqualified, uh, maybe even racist, uh, and the other people don't trust. Uh, and that's kind of just a, a disappointing place to be in 12 days before an election. But even with that, I think we, what we've seen is actually not a lot different, right? The electoral map, despite Trump's talking about changing it up and appealing to different constituencies, the map looks pretty much like it has looked for the last couple of election cycles. So despite all the the long campaign and the amount of difference that we've talked about, we actually sort of end up with an election, I think, that looks relatively similar to the elections we've seen. You know, that's interesting because, you know, we in the media do talk very often about this being a unique campaign, but the bottom line is how the election is going to turn out, not just the popular vote, but the electoral map. And now that we are getting a little bit closer to the election, uh, we see newspapers, we see websites that are projecting electoral votes. And Right now, if you go by polls, Hillary Clinton wins pretty big. You know, we don't want to say that 12 days ahead of time because things can – we want people to vote, for one thing. And, uh, you know, you don't want to say that it's over already because then you do pe- keep people from voting. But one of the things I wanted to put an emphasis on today is, okay, it is it has been a unique campaign, uh, but it may end up looking like many people thought – But there are characteristics of this campaign that we haven't seen before, or if we did, it was before uh, there were television cameras, radio, microphone, certainly uh, the the Internet. I mean, everyone, when we say the most divided country ever, people will point out that, uh, well, you know, we once fought a war. We were so divided. And they go back to 1800 uh, with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and apparently that was really, really nasty. It's a good thing they didn't have Twitter then. But, you know, let's let's talk about some of the things that do divide this country. Now, one thing before we even get to that, Dr. O'Connor, you said to me before we went on the air today, I, I said I'm going to kind of put an emphasis on a polarized, divided country. You said, well, I don't think it's as divided as what everyone says. 
Okay, now this is the guy. We have an audience here. You can hear them react in the background. This is a guy who wants the the campaigns to continue, and he also says we're not divided. So I don't know why I have you on this show, but go ahead. Right. So I think what, what we need to always be clear about is when we use that term polarization, we have to have some precision with it. Uh, and if we're talking about Congress, then yes, Congress is more divided than they have been in the past. And that's the product of long-term historical changes dating back to the 1960s. Uh, and that has really started to affect Congress in the 1980s and then going forward. But if we then take it a step further and we ask about political activists, those individuals who really care who controls the presidency or Congress, people who participate in ways in, that are above voting, those individuals have grown more extreme to some extent. But that's about a third of the population. The other two-thirds, uh, those Americans remain moderate uh, in their opinions. If we look at differences between so-called red and blue states, we don't necessarily see any statistically significant differences, even on hot-button social issues. Uh, if we look at opinion on something like abortion, Americans for 40 years have had a, a moderate opinion on abortion. They think it should be legal under certain circumstances. Uh, and, and that really hasn't changed. So, you know, I was talking to a student yesterday, and he was saying back in his hometown in Maryland uh, that someone had been lighting Hillary Clinton signs on fire. And I wouldn't deny that those types of things do happen, but I don't think that they're representative, and often the media winds up focusing on those individuals as representative representing the average American when actually they are a much smaller percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. Good, so, I mean, David and I play devil's advocate with each other a lot of times <laughs> in our, our, our office building. Um, but I think part of one of the things that's unique about this election um, is that we had in the most recent debate a candidate say that they might not accept the election results as they end up and then sort of clarified that position the next day to say, well, I'll accept them, but only if I win. And that is different. Um, and so I think thinking about what it means to unify a country under those set of, of circumstances is an important conversation to have. Um, but I think where we've seen the majority of, of folks is to say that that Trump is not correct on that. Um, and so there is actually has been a fair amount of unity about accepting election results. His own vice president came out and said that we would do, you know, that they would accept the election results regardless of how it came out. So I think there's, there is unity on those things. Um, and so I think that's one way to, to think about going forward. And Dr. O'Connell, we're not going to gang up on you or anything here, but uh, <laughs> just to push back a little bit too, you know, again, not only what uh, Dr. Nabler points out, but think about the violence that we have seen this year. You're talking about, um, you know, the, the starting burning Hillary Clinton signs. Same thing has happened the other way around with Trump signs. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of violence at some of these rallies. Uh, I think one of the things that's so noticeable, and maybe it's not just this presidential campaign, it started even before, and many people attribute this to social media, but... When we have a disagreement today, it seems as though it's not, okay, we're friends, we can disagree on this, all right, let's go have a cup of coffee. Now it's, you're evil, you're dumb, how can you possibly think that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that to some extent that that does happen. And you know, one of the statistics that always kind of boggles my mind is that today, only 9% of marriages are cross-party marriages, with a Republican and a Democrat choosing to marry each other, which to me, I, I, I find... I had never hard. heard that stat. Yeah, I, and I, find it, I find it hard to... I hope it's right then. Uh, that I find it hard to, to believe that because I don't think the, the differences are as wide. And, and, I, and again, I just feel that we focus so much on those isolated instances of violence uh, at rallies and things like that, 
uh, and that, that that's not really representative. Well, it might not be representative, but I think we do still tend to hang out with people and talk with people who have similar beliefs to us. And I think social media has exacerbated that in some important ways. Right? If you look at your list of Facebook friends, your list of Twitter followers, um, you know, 90% of them are probably people you already agree with. So I think we do tend to isolate ourselves more in these kind of more homogenous communities. And then when we do get to these issues that are more contentious, I think we've lost the ability, or we don't practice it as much, the ability to kind of talk to each other about these contentious issues. And so we instead do sort of demonize the other side, not because we're really entrenched in our own views, but just because we don't have practice doing that. Um, And we've, we've, we just, we just don't do it. You know, it's also, so if we think about the audience for uh, partisan media, right? That's going right. to be more extreme, confirm what people already know, self-selected audiences. Uh, you know, the average nightly audience for someone like Sean Hannity, it's going to be the same as, say, Arrow on the CW. And we wouldn't make arguments that Arrow on the CW is having a huge impact on American culture. I mean, I it's know. a smaller... Talk for yourself. I don't even know. I have to admit, I'm not familiar with the program. But, but that, that's, that's the point, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, something, though, that you just said, I just saw... Uh, it was a pretty lengthy story the other day and was looking into this issue of polarization. And actually, it pointed to the media uh, as being the number one reason. Now, when I say the media, but the you know, media, I don't know what the media is. But uh, those networks that uh, have uh, a, a political point of view going in, uh, uh, Fox with Republicans, conservative, MSNBC being liberal, that people, not only do they hang out with people who have some of the same political beliefs, they get their news from places, from media, that kind of reinforces their beliefs. And this research had shown that that was the biggest factor in why we have a divided country is that people aren't listening to one another. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, public opinion theory that says the people who are paying most close attention to what's going on in politics are the entrenched partisans. They're the people who have made up their minds about what they think about politics. And so no matter what they watch, and they mostly are watching things that agree with them already, no matter what they watch, though, they're not going to change their minds. The people who are most likely to change their minds are people who you know, have some beliefs that are more in line with the Democratic Party, some beliefs that are more in line with the Republican Party. They're maybe taking in information, but they're not, you know, they're not actually taking in as much information as the people who already have these really strong beliefs and know what they think about politics. Do you think that there are a lot, and by a lot, I know that's a, a broad way to describe it, a lot of undecided voters in the presidential election right now. The polls show that like 2 and 10% are undecided. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I don't what do, think what do you say? What do, what do you think that people have made up their minds already? I do. I mean, you pointed to the fact, I think it's 90, 92% of the electorate has made up their minds about who to vote for. Um, of the remaining 8 or 9%, um, some subset of them will not end up voting on election day. If they're, you know, if we're two weeks out and people haven't decided who they're going to vote for, they probably won't end up turning out to vote. That's historically what we've seen. If they do turn out to vote, their votes sort of end up canceling each other out. There's this myth that um, undecideds break for the challenger or for the non-incumbent party at the end, and I don't think there's a lot of there's not a lot of evidence to support that. Yeah. Uh, I think also if we look at um, research on the timeline of a presidential campaign, what we see is that polls in the last two months of an election 
they're extremely accurate in predicting the final outcome. Uh, that preferences have really solidified after the conventions. Uh, and there's very little movement in that time period. And that's one of the reasons why debates aren't really significant. It's because by the time debates come around, people have already made up their mind. And the people that tune into debates are people who care about politics. And thus their mind that has already been made up is going to influence how they think the debate went. Uh, that they come in thinking they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton and then they think Hillary Clinton won the debate. And now that the debates are over, there's not this extra moment, you know, there's not a moment in the next 12 days that could be that huge event um, that would swing the the polls eight or nine or 10 points. It seems unlikely at least. Well, okay, let me just uh, push back on that a little bit too. Uh, I have talked to several people who have said that yeah, agreeing with what you're saying about the polls, especially momentum. I mean, the polls seem to show that Hillary Clinton has been opening up a lead here in the in the last few weeks since the debates. But, you know, we live in different times. And one of the things that, you know, we've heard the, the term October surprise. Usually that means some type of scandal. I don't know if scandal would make any difference this time. But heaven forbid there was a terrorist attack or something like that, a huge event like that. Do you think that something like that could make a difference? It's hard to say because I can't think of a historical parallel. It's also uh, hard to play out how the public would react to that uh, because in the event of a terrorist attack, the one thing that I can say for certain is that Barack Obama is going to get more popular, uh, that this is one of the fundamental findings of public opinion is that you see these rally around the flag effects after a dramatic international event directly involving the United States. You see a short term, not always, but sometimes you see a short term surge in presidential approval, either because of patriotism or because of the strained criticism of opposition party leaders uh, and media figures. And so if Barack Obama is more popular than what we know about elections, is that actually helps Hillary Clinton, but historically the Republican Party tends to have a stronger advantage on issues of national security. So in that kind of hypothetical, I'm not even sure. Maybe it winds up being a wash. That's what I would echo. I mean, that's what I would say as well. I think that generally we think of Republicans benefiting from, the Republican Party benefiting from uh, you know, international incidents or, or terrorist attacks. Um, but given Clinton's experience as Secretary of State, I think that buttresses a lot of those claims and I think would, among her supporters, um, you know, would still believe that you know, that would illustrate for them Trump's unreadiness to lead as commander-in-chief. We have uh, a question from our audience. Uh, what if Gary Johnson gets enough electoral votes to deny Hillary or uh, Trump the election? Well, seems I, unlikely. Yeah, it seems... Yeah, I mean, I think it's... First of all, it seems unlikely. I mean, there's... Most recent polling I've seen has Johnson polling about five, five, five and a half percent. Um, you know, we don't have to go back that far to remember that Perot got almost 20 percent of the vote and still didn't win any electoral college votes. So it's really difficult to win electoral college votes. Um, so that would be the sort of first big caveat that I would yeah. raise to that. Yeah, I actually thought earlier in the election cycle that Gary Johnson had a chance of doing better. Uh, that he would get a higher percentage of the popular vote. But, you know, the people who are considering voting for Gary Johnson, they're highly educated, informed voters that are really paying attention. Uh, and so the missteps that he's made, being unable to identify a single foreign leader that he admires, I think that's hurt his chances of peeling off some of those voters. And then there's this natural reluctance that people have to cast a ballot for uh, a third-party candidate. So the reason that we have two parties in America is simply our electoral rules. Political scientists call this Duverger's law. Uh, any country that has 
single member simple plurality districts where we're electing one person and the person with the most votes wins that leads to two parties because of strategic voting people don't want to waste their vote on a third party candidate that ultimately is just going to throw the election to the candidate that they most oppose so over the course of a campaign even if third party candidates poll higher they tend to lose that support as people recognize the reality that they don't have a chance of winning i think that's happened to johnson and i think that uh you know the mistakes that he's made has hurt him as well. Well, and Johnson's vice presidential candidate said something similar yeah. to that earlier in the week, right? Then, then he walked it back and said, "No, I'm not. I'm not saying that you should vote for Clinton." But he was acknowledging the sort of strategic shortcomings of voting for a third-party candidate. Um, and I think, as the if the election, since it is you know, relatively close, I think it becomes more pressure on Johnson supporters not to to quote unquote waste that vote. Yeah, and if we think to Perot, he had resources that Gary Johnson has not had. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time for this segment, and I'm going to ask you to look ahead a little bit uh, past November 8th. Uh, you know, so many times you've heard the media say and so many people talk about that, how historic this election is. It is for at least the very reason that uh, we have uh, a female nominee, possibly uh, a woman who will be president. I mean, so there's a lot of history there, but it's unique in a lot of other ways. So looking past November 8th, and looking past whichever candidate is elected, what impact does this election, does this campaign have on this country? I guess I, when we first started seeing, you know, when Trump first emerged as a Republican nominee, um, you know, I, ta- I was teaching classes in the spring, and I felt like I was teaching all of my classes saying, with a sort of big, big asterisk on things and saying, well, this is how we've always thought that campaigns and elections worked, and now we're not really sure. Um, and if anything, over the last six months, I've actually gotten more confident that the system um, will continue to work as it has worked. Some of that is because the electoral map looks similar to what it's looked. Um, some of it is because I think we've seen there are real skills that politicians have um, that Trump has not been able to to use in debates and in other formats. Um, and so I think you know, we're really quick to criticize politicians and we're really quick to say, I don't want an insider politician running. I don't want an insider politician elected. Um, but I, see, I think we're seeing a little bit of some of the strength of, of career politicians in this campaign. And so, you know, compared to where I was six months ago, I'm actually not sure that things will change that dramatically after this election. Yeah, I agree with that, too. I think that uh, the question after the election is how the Republican Party responds to Trump's candidacy. And a lot of people are predicting, say, is a civil war among Trump supporters and the rank and file base of the Republican Party that hasn't as enthusiastically embraced him. But I think what we have to remember is that political parties, they're strategic organizations, right? That they're ambitious politicians who are seeking to win office. uh, And they, they make adjustments that they will take a step back, think about what has happened. Uh, I think that it's likely we'll see some changes in the nominating process going forward uh, to try to eliminate the chance of this happening again, where a candidate that's opposed by the leaders of a political party is actually able to obtain the nomination. Uh, I think that they'll try to change their outreach towards Latino voters and other groups that they were making strides in that have perhaps been set back by this campaign. But I don't, I don't necessarily see dramatic changes after the election either. Dr. David O'Connell is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College. Dr. Sarah Niebler, also Assistant Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Cornerstone Coffee House, Cornerstone Coffee House uh, 2311 
2133. I am really, I'm doing this from memory, and I guess I shouldn't do that uh, today. 2133 Market Street in Camp Hill. It's a Smart Talk uh, road trip. And I should mention that uh, today's Smart Talk road trip live remote broadcast is supported by Boyer and Ritter, certified public accountants and consultants, and Rieger and Adler, attorneys and counselors at law. Our system of government is an adversarial one. The nation's founders set it up that way so that issues would be debated, there would be checks and balances, there would be resolution, and it was meant to reflect the will of the people. It didn't always work out that way, but there was a time when members of Congress or a state legislature were more willing to listen to their opponents and maybe compromise to get work done. Today we live in a divided Congress, maybe divided country, you heard Dr. O'Connell talk about that earlier, and we wonder... If, if compromise is a bad word today, what happened and how can this be repaired? A Pennsylvania statesman from another era who keeps his hand in what is happening today is former Senator and author Franklin Curie. Senator Curie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Glad and to be here. I shouldn't introduce you as from another era. <laughs> I'm still alive. Here. Yeah, that's right. That, uh, <laughs> I can attest to that. I have my hand on his shoulder right now. But no, what I meant by that is from another era, maybe even uh, you know in the legislature, but also another era as to uh, how the legislature in Pennsylvania, how the Congress acted toward one another and worked with one another. Uh, you heard uh, David O'Connell earlier say that we don't d- live in a divided country. What do you think? I disagree with him. I think the public has a very strong opinions, overwhelming opinions on some subjects, but they're not reflected in the Congress. For example, if the public opinion counted, we'd have background checks for guns right now. Overwhelmingly, the American people want that, but the Congress doesn't represent the public opinion anymore. They're split, and all the Republicans want to do is pass things that they like and block everything that Obama wants. And that's what the problem is. Look, this election is not about politics, it's about setting up a government. And the first thing the president-elect has to do, whether it's he or she, is select a cabinet to run a government. And then on January 20th, take an oath of office to carry it out. Members of Congress take an oath of office to carry out the Constitution. And that means they're supposed to get a government that works. It means they should talk to each other and compromise. Uh, I was very disturbed this morning. I, yeah, let's talk about this. I heard on one of the TV stations that one of the Republican chairmen of the federal house is saying that if Mrs. Clinton is elected, they have enough ammunition, they can investigate her for the next four years on how she behaved as Secretary of State. Well, if that's the way things are going to be, the public is going to get even more upset than it is now, because that's not governing. We've got to go into the future, not the past. We've got to who wins. If Trump wins or Clinton wins, whoever does... The other parties have got to work with that person to the extent they can and not just throw up roadblocks uh, to try or try to investigate to see how bad they are, how bad they were. Well, you know, it was said very early on when uh, President Obama was elected that the Republican, one of the Republican uh, leaders in the Senate said that our number one goal is to make sure that uh, Barack Obama is a one-term president. Well, he wasn't. He was elected to a a, a second term. But that part aside, that was not thinking about governing and doing the will of the people. And from what you're describing, what you heard this morning, it sounds like the exact same thing. 
Well, it could be, and that's what scares me about this. The election's just the beginning of, hopefully, four years of government. Now, I think whoever wins and whoever loses has got to get together with the leaders of the party and other national leaders around the country to say, look, we've got to stop all this backbiting and investigations. Whoever wins, let's forget the past and work on the future. And that means we've got to work on compromise if, and, uh, 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 where we can and try to solve some problems. We should have problems in immigration, problems in gun violence, problems in criminal justice, all kinds of uh, foreign affairs questions. We've got a lot of problems out there. But it's not going to happen if the Republicans or the Democrats say all we're going to do is oppose the president regardless of what he does, make him or her a one-term president. Mm -hmm. I think that's ridiculous. That is unconstitutional. It's not American. (laughs) Here's a basic question. And since, uh, you know, you were in the legislature, you can answer this. Uh, But when you're talking about a congressional district, it's much larger than a state legislative district. How do you represent the will of your people? How do you know what... And I hate to say the majority because there are some things that you just know are right or that, uh, you know, you, that that's what you, you support and you know your voters support that way. Uh, and they can vote you out if they don't. But how do you know what the voters, what the people in your district are thinking? Well, you listen to them. I used to hold a lot of town meetings. I'd walk around. I'd talk. I'd go to meetings, dinners. I'd listen to people. You've got to reach out and listen to people. Now, the problem with these congressional districts particularly is they're so gerrymandered that the incumbents don't have to pay attention to the people who are not of their party because they are so overwhelmingly one-party districts. So I think that disenfranchises a lot of people in those congressional districts. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I say this all the time, and I actually I'm very proud of it, that uh, whenever we talk about some of these issues, we always have a listener or two who calls in and says that, uh, you know, congressional redistricting is one of the key issues that we have to make some reform because so many of these other issues that we're talking about are influenced by just, you use the word disenfranchise, that so many other issues are influenced by, we know who's going to be elected or at least, and you know, another thing that happens is there's no opposition. That's right. I mean, this year at least, I will say, you know, we're interviewing most of the congressional uh, candidates in our 18 uh, county listening area, and at least there are some opponents, which is kind of unusual itself. I think I pointed out to you, we spoke uh, a week or so yeah, ago, yeah. Uh, that in 2012, before 2012, in our 18 counties in central Pennsylvania, I think we had like four congressional districts, four districts where we had to talk to candidates. This year we have eight. Those districts I mean, the 15th, for example, goes from the Delaware River to Dauphin County to the Susquehanna River. Now, you know, not that they're so different, but let's face it, Dauphin County, Lebanon County, a lot different than Lehigh County and the Philadelphia suburbs. And so gerrymandering, redistricting reform would seem to be one of the keys to making this a a little less divided. But at the same time, Again, you've been in the legislature. How do you get legislators on board with that? Well, and you've, you've touched a very important point. It's the state legislators, the state House members and state senators who will decide how these congressional lines are drawn. And the only way to get them to do it is if the people, you people sitting here today, those listening to us, talk to their House and Senate candidates and tell them, well, you want a reform. 
You want to get a commission to draw these district lines, not the competing parties. Because what I'm scared of, right now it looks like, this is just right now, Hillary will carry the state easily. But I'll bet you that no congressional seats will change hands. And they go to Washington with the idea of blocking everything she wants to do. Because for some reason they're impervious to the public opinion of the state because of the way they're districted. That would be a great tragedy because this country needs to, needs government, and there needs people on both sides of the fence talking together to get its things done. I'm afraid it won't, and I, I hope I'm wrong. Now, I, I asked you earlier as a state legislator how you reflected the will of the people. These congressional districts are much larger. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. 660 or 50,000. Right. State Senate seats about 250,000. State legislature about 60,000. So you're talking, you know, over 600,000 people. And those people are in Washington, not Harrisburg. So how does a congressman or woman, how does a congressperson find out or get an idea of what their constituents, other than at election time? Well, I don't know. I have, they don't have to speak for themselves, but they've got to get out and listen to people. But the problem is the way the districts are set up, they don't, they're not forced to pay attention to people. They're not their own party. They're more concerned about an attack from the right at a primary than they are from— Republicans you're talking yes. about. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's who controls the, their 13, 18 congressmen from Pennsylvania. 13 are Republicans, five Democrats. Now, of the 18 congressmen from Pennsylvania— 14 win by 60% or better last time. Well, that's overwhelmingly safe. How can you challenge that? When Wolf beat Corbett, he only got 54.7% of the vote. I mean, 60% safety, that is, that's tough. That's like making the, the Democrats run 150 yards for a touchdown and the Republicans only got to go 50. It's just not, and these districts are not drawn because there's any reason to it. All they want to do is protect incumbents. All right, so let's talk about voters themselves. Uh, you know, Dr. O'Connell talked about the Congress being divided. Uh, you know, if you, anyone on social media can see some very ugly things that yeah. are being said out there, do you think Americans are divided? I mean, uh, he also said that the, the majority of Americans are probably moderate if you look at the, yeah. the issues that they're looking at. Uh, and we in the media tend to focus on those extremes. But do you agree with that, or do you think the people themselves are divided? I think I would agree with uh, uh, with Professor O'Connell that the public generally is moderate and there are extremes on both sides. As I said before, the problem is that that moderate position is not reflected in the people who are elected to Congress because of the gerrymandering. But uh, I think that what we have, people have got to accept, not only do the candidates have to accept the results of the election, but the people do, too. And then they've got to let their congressmen or legislators know they want them to work together to solve problems and not just keep on this campaigning for another four years. If that happens, the country's lost. What's the point of having a constitution if all you do is keep refighting these elections every without interruption? Remember, the purpose is to govern, and that's what's lost in this. Give an example of when you were in the legislature— I mean, what was it like? I, I mean, I described it as a different era, but as far as reaching across the aisle, as far as, I mean, we've heard about legislators going out and having drinks, having uh, dinner, that kind of thing. My very favorite moment was when the, I sponsored a bill to require people not to build in floodplains 
and to have stormwater management retention basins. And the bill was brought up to the floor of the Senate, and the first vote it was defeated 32 to 18. I was shell-shocked. And at that moment, the Republican floor leader, Jack Stauffer, walked over to me and said, Frank, if you give me two votes, I'll get you, f if you give me two amendments, I'll get you four Republican votes. I said, Jack, what do you have in mind? And he had some reasonable requests. We worked it out, and two weeks later, we brought the bill back up for a second vote, which you were entitled to in the Senate, and this time it passed 28 to uh, 22. I had all those four more Republican votes, and the Democratic leadership got me some more votes, so we, had to, we were able to pass it. But when Stauffer walked over and said, give me two amendments and I'll get you four Republican votes, that's the way it ought to work. That's horse trading. That's politics at its best. That's solving problems. That's not just saying, well, you're a Democrat, so we're against it, or you're a Republican, so we're against it. I'm very pleased with that moment. I like it. But, let me, because there is a but here. Yeah. Uh, you know, many people would point to that and say, well, that was, uh, that happened in the back room. There was, there was no, a smoke-filled room there that uh, the people didn't have a whole lot to say. That Those two Republicans switched on you. Uh, were they really reflecting the will of the people? Well, I don't know, but it, I don't think the kind of amendments they wanted were the kind of fine-tuning that the public gets involved with. And one of the amendments was, if a community doesn't adopt the floodplain bill, how do you penalize it? And I had the Department of Community Affairs or somebody penalize them. They said, let's have the state treasurer withhold the money from them until they comply. Well, I bought that in place of my pr proposed way of enforcing it. That's the kind of amendment which I don't think the public had a lot of feelings about. But I think the public generally liked the idea of the bills. Was, when you were in the legislature, was compromise commonplace? I mean, did oh, that kind of thing happen all the time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, take uh, Article One, Section Twenty-Seven of the State Constitution. The environmental I'll take that. Yeah. Well, I would. I, I will too. <laughs> I was very proud of that. Well, you know, that I introduced it, and it took five amendments before it went to the public. Just to let everyone here know and our audience, what is that amendment? Well, it, is, it says that people have a right to a decent environment. That the state uh, public is the owner of the public natural resources, and. The state is the trustee of these resources. Well, that was amended five times. Uh, stormwater management floodplain, dozens of amendments. Uh, I also did a bill on, uh, on the PUC reform and establishing the consumer advocate for the PUC. Well, all those bills were heavily amended. They all went through conference committees. In other words, the Senate passed it in one version, the House in another version, then there was a conference committee of three senators, or three senators and three House members, and we'd sit down together and work out the differences. Well, I was chair of several of those, and it worked out you know, well. We, it wasn't what I originally wanted, but it was substantially what I wanted, and uh, it worked. We yeah. got the bills. All right, so the big question is, what do we do to repair the division that we have uh, in this country and in Harrisburg and in Washington? Well, I think it's got to start with the people, the voters. The power in the, of government in the United States starts at the grassroots. What anybody tells you, it's the grassroots people. And people have got to tell their candidates and their congressmen, we want you to stop this bicker when the election's over, start to govern, and be reasonable about talking to the other side and listening to the other side. And let's not have no vendettas. If Hillary wins, let's not investigate what she did eight years ago. If Trump wins, let's not investigate his foundations, whatever problems he has. Give them all a clean shave, whoever wins. 
and try to help them govern, because that's the whole point of it. Otherwise, our founding fathers are wasted their time with the Constitution. Former Senator Frank Curie, thank you very much for being with us today, Senator. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The polls show that minority voters overwhelmingly support Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump for president and favor Democrats overall. Why and what are the issues important to African-American voters in particular? Our guest during this portion of the program is Stanley Lawson, president of the Greater Harrisburg chapter of the NAACP. Mr. Lawson, welcome to the program. Good morning, sir. I'm glad to be here. And let me also remind you that uh, today's live broadcast, today's Smart Talk Road Trip, is being supported by Boyer and Ritter, certified public accountants and consultants, and Rieger and Adler, attorneys and counselors at law. All right. Now, one thing I'm going to point out right up front is that the NAACP does not endorse candidates. So just say that right up front, that uh, we can talk about issues, we can talk about observations of, and uh, the issues that are important to African-American voters in, uh, in the country, but you're not here to say we support one candidate or the other. Absolutely not. We do not endorse any candidate. Why is that? I mean, just, t- just talk a little bit about because that. Because of the law, election law, 501C, we're, we're wow. an organization, so we have to go by the law. Mm-hmm. All right. But at the same time, we can talk about issues. Yes. Uh, the broad question that I've asked all our guests here so far today, uh, your thoughts on what you've seen in this presidential campaign from an African-American standpoint? Well, let me say this first. Um, African-Americans and Americans almost see things the same way. If I run through a pothole and tear my car up and you come behind me in the same pothole, you're going to get the same result. <laughs> so we're really not far apart. We just act like it. <laughs> uh, the things that concern African-Americans uh, in, the, in, the, in the senior community is Social Security. Uh, you know, they keep saying, oh, it's going to be fine. We're going to do it great. But the deficit keeps going up and up. So at some point, what are they going to do about it? I'm tired of candidates saying, we're going to make this better. We're going to do this. We're going to fix that. But they don't say how they're going to do it. That actually has been one of the criticisms of Donald Trump, uh, that you know he points out a lot of the problems that we do have, but doesn't offer a lot of concrete solutions. And voters overall are looking for solutions. Don't you think that voters are looking for solutions? Maybe I should ask the question that way. Are voters looking for solutions? Because it seems as though this year a lot of voters are really into the the show business aspect of this. Well, actually, the voters get what they deserve. People always get the government they deserve when they vote or don't vote. And so, uh, for instance, with Medicare, they don't pay for dental or eyes. So a lot of seniors are concerned about that. What are they going to do about that? I mean, these are things they should talk about. And, you know, not this pie-in-the-sky stuff. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Pacifics, what are you going to do about Medicare? What are you going to do about Social Security? What are you going to do about mass transportation? For instance, young people need jobs. That's the important thing in, in, in the community, jobs. A lot of jobs are moved out of the city. Uh, I was on city council at one time. I was the first black person serving Harrisburg City Council. Then I moved to Susquehanna Township. I became president of Susquehanna Township. Okay, then I became Dolphin County Republican chairman. Republican, by the way. Yeah, and then I became president of uh, Council 90 ASME Union. So I was able to, to, to work with both sides because it's not that much different. We just make it that, that much different. I think we enjoy being different. All right, well, let's, we enjoy being different? I think what do, so. What do you mean? 
Well, I mean, Hillary and, 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 and Trump, one has a lot of junk in the trunk, and the other one can't climb a hill. <laughs> <laughs> but you are a, a Republican. Yes. If we go by the polls, Trump has, like, no support uh, amongst African-American voters. And the last several elections, uh, Democrats have dominated, at least in presidential level, Democrats have dominated amongst the African-American voters. Why are you Republican? Well, I'm a Republican. I, I became a Republican back in the 60s and because I am conservative and still am today. And, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, I'm, uh, I agree with everything Republicans do. I might be a fool, but I ain't no damn fool. <laughs> well, let's, you bring up a point here that, uh, and, and Trump actually may, has made this point. Now, uh, you know, uh, he's been criticized for his lack of polish and how he's made this point, but that Democrats have taken the African-American vote for granted. I, I, I'm, I've been concerned about that for years. Actually, in the African-American community, the politicians don't have to spend much money. Republicans know they can't get anything there, and Democrats feel they have them in the hip pocket, so they overlook that. But I think this time, uh, it, 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 the problem with that is Harrisburg, and I looked at the, before I came here, the results of the last couple of elections, only 16% of the eligible voters came to vote. So that don't tell me, they might be Democrats, but they can't be that damn happy. In, in the city of Harrisburg, you're talking about? Yes. Okay. And uh, among and city of Harrisburg has a majority minority community, mm. you know. Or, or, or let me also go back to you know. We know that in the last two years, that one of the significant issues that the country has faced is the relationship between the black community, the police department. Actually, you've heard Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, a number of people who are speaking out about what they see as racial injustice and discrimination. Will that be an issue in this presidential campaign? Is it an issue? I think to this extent. Now, I, like you said, I've served as president of Susquehanna Township. I, I chose the police chief. I have confidence in the police chief. Was that Rob Martin? Rob Martin. Yeah, Rob Martin. Uh, has... Rob Martin. At the time, they wanted to promote someone else from outside, and I, and I promoted him from within. I named him police chief, and I've been very proud of that. But that's like anybody. There's good and bad in everybody. You got bad in you, and I got good in me. And sometimes you're, you get bad, and sometimes you get good. Well, my and wife will tell you that. <laughs> but the, my point is, when you get caught, you got to pay the price. I mean, I'm not going to uh, – every cop is not bad. That's stupid to say that. It's foolish. There are a lot of good police officers, but the bad ones get the attention. But will it make a difference in voting in the African-American community this time? I think when you talk about the police, it does not make a difference. I think it's local. I think with more national issues. Now, I'll tell you one thing that really bothers me personally. If I steal your car tomorrow and you don't report it and I hit that young lady right there, you got problems. You but, don't hit Heather. But if, if you steal my gun and shoot that lady, you don't have a problem. I think that you have some responsibility. I believe in the, 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 the right to carry firearms. I believe in the Second Amendment. However, you have some responsibility. When your gun is stolen, it, has to, it should be reported because that's what's going on in the community today. Almost everybody has a gun that they didn't buy. It was stolen from somebody who didn't report it. And that's a major problem in, 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 in the minority community. Mm -hmm. And that is something that most Democratic candidates, at least here in Pennsylvania, support. But the Republicans have, in, in the legislature actually, uh, you know, have uh, have 
well, put it this way. There have been uh, municipalities across the state that have enacted that law, that uh, there was must report if a gun was stolen or lost. And uh, the legislature is actually working on a bill right now that would allow outside groups to sue those municipalities if that be the case. You, you're well aware. I mean, in Susquehanna Township, uh, city of Harrisburg, we have a gun. We have a lot of gun owners in this state. One of the reasons it makes it so difficult. So if you were to go to Harrisburg I'm right a now, gun owner. Well, if you were to go to Harrisburg right now in the legislature, what would you tell them? What kind of examples would you give them? You know, everyone uses the term common sense gun laws. What would you say? I'm not just talking about African-Americans, but yes, it is pronounced in the African-American community. What would you say to them? I would say to them, I look them dead in the eyes, don't wait until your son or daughter is killed. Do something about it now. What about on the national level? I mean, can the Congress of the United States do anything? Can the president of the United States do anything about violence, about uh, gun violence in uh, not just the African-American community, but across the country? Well, number one, I will say this. People kill people. Guns don't kill people. We just have to keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. And then, uh, and when you go get, buy a gun and, you, and you're checked out and you're qualified for it, there's not a problem. But when your gun is stolen... And gets in the hands of the wrong people. That's a very serious and dangerous problem. Earlier on, you were talking about uh, some issues that uh, were very important, not just to older African Americans, but older Americans overall. When you're talking about Social Security, Medicare, all those things, health care. We, we know the cost of health care. Just yesterday, <laughs> came out that uh, the Federal Insurance Exchange. Rates are going up 22%. Here in Pennsylvania, they're going up 37%, I believe, a top rate of uh, 53% increase. What about younger African Americans? First of all, will they vote? And I'm not just talking about African Americans, but younger people have a tendency not to vote overall. But what about younger African Americans? Will they vote? And what are the issues most important to them? I certainly hope they do. A lot of the younger people I talked to were for Bernie Sanders, and, 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 and Bernie's not running. And now that's a problem. Some of them say, well, I'm going to write him in. I say, that's a wasted vote. And so we're trying to encourage those young people to come out and vote, do everything we can, because they have a vested interest in their community. And uh, if you don't vote, well, then you're voting for the guy that you don't want, because a no vote does count. You know, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, there were people who referred to him as America's first black president. Uh, that doesn't seem to have gone over to Hillary. As much. I mean, uh, it was it's very it was very obvious that uh, Hillary would get the majority of African-American votes, majority of Latino votes. Uh, but it, it really, in, a, in many ways, in some states, that would all she would need almost to win, win the election. But is Hillary Clinton Bill Clinton in your mind? No, no, let me let me say this to you about the two candidates. I'm not endorsing anybody. I can't. But neither one are saints. Uh, I, I mean, you. I mean, what, what are you going to do? You got to take the, the the devil you know, better better than the devil you don't, or, or, or the worst of the evils. But come on, America cannot be proud. Uh, this is the best two people in America to be United States of America. I don't believe it. For black or white, mm -hmm. you know, we've been talking a lot about a divided country. Uh, and again, many people have, have talked about, especially since Ferguson, Missouri, the shooting there, that black and white are more divided than we've been in decades. You agree with that? No. In certain areas, yes. Uh, but I, I was in the United States Navy, and uh, that was a, a great thing for me because when you go, to, you, you, you depend on each other. 
You don't look around and say, are you black or you white? You help me. <laughs> you got my back? That, that, that's how it is. But now, the, the, when you zero on a particular issue, and that's the only issue, Ferguson was unfortunate, it was bad, but does not make me hate you. But at the same time, at the same time, and I mean, I, I always have the butts here when I do the show. Uh, at the same time, if you look at polls on issues, there are some real wide disparities in how African Americans see issues on some issues and how whites see those issues. I mean, one I can go back, and I'm going back 20 years now. O.J. Simpson, for example. You know, one of the reasons I bring that up is because that was one of the widest disparities I've ever ever seen. That if you ask a majority of Caucasians, overwhelming majority said the guy was guilty of killing his wife and Ron Goldman. African Americans, it was not complete opposite, but about 60% of African Americans thought that he was not guilty, that he hadn't done it. And Everyone heard that same evidence, watched that same thing. Maybe that's not a good example because it does for about 20 years. But if the glove don't fit, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) You think he was guilty? Look, I don't. I don't second judge. That's the law of the land. You have you have your peers. They make a decision. That's it. No, but the example I'm making is how uh, African Americans and whites see issues so differently. Well, see, that, that is, to some point, we, tr- we, we always say that. Like I said, I'm Republican. I'm president of NAACP, former president of the biggest labor union in Pennsylvania, Republican. So it can't be all that big, and 90% of the union was Democrat. Okay. 90% of my district in Susquehanna Township was Democrat, but yet I was Republican. It's issues. It's issues. But let me put it this way. Is if a white candidate was to go... Uh, to a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, wouldn't there be some suspicion right off and, and the other way around, too? Okay. I'm glad you asked. All right. <laughs> Who was the mayor of Harrisburg? Right now. What color is he? He's a white guy. Who's the state representative in Harrisburg? What race is she? She's Korean. There's your answer. So you're not, but do you think that there would be suspicion? Look at that's Harrisburg. Chicago, say. Philadelphia. Bigger city. People are always suspicious of one another. There are people, the, the silent majority are the, are the really problem in America. They sit back and don't say anything, and the people who talk loud draw the crowd. Mm. So that's what happens. So we pay attention to people talking loud. Not people who make sense, not people who talk facts, but just talk loud. Stan Lawson is the president of the Harris, Greater Harrisburg chapter of the NAACP. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. And I want to also pass on that the WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg law firm of Saul Ewing LLP. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, yes, we're going to talk about politics, but a little bit different tomorrow. The author of our pick of the month, Aaron McHugh, has written a book called Political Suicide. Talks about some missteps and a lot of other things, and I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, Today's Smart Talk Road Trip live broadcast is being supported by Boyer and Ritter, certified public accountants and consultants, and Rieger and Adler, attorneys and counselors at law. I'm Scott Lamar. Enjoy your day.